Hey, Media People podcast listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, then you're going to love our newsletter, appropriately named the Media People Newsletter. Delivered right to your inbox, each edition is a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or go to mediapeople.beehive.com. That's B-E-E-H-I-I-V. Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Ron Tite, founder and chief creative officer of Church and State, stops by to chat. And what a conversation we have. Even if you've never met Ron, there's a good chance you've come across his content. Apart from being CCO of Church and State, he's an in-demand guest speaker, published author, and very active on social media. What makes Ron's content both unique and refreshing is that he isn't shy about sharing his honest opinions on a wide variety of topics concerning marketing, advertising, and business. Ron Tite stops by to chat about growing up in Oshawa, why he studied phys ed in university, how working for a business school was just as good as attending business school, and a creative advertising career that includes founding the award-winning agency, Church and State. Church and State is an agency in Toronto that really works with brands and organizations uh, to help them capture the battle for time. That's what we're all up against. And in my role as you know, chief creative officer and kind of chief strategy officer in a way, and that I'm just, I'm responsible for product. So how are we going about solving our clients' problems? How are we coming up with communications that do win the battle for time? So strategy and creative both report into me. Well, Ron, thank you for being generous with your time today. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Well, originally, uh, I was born in Montreal. And uh, for the most part, um, you know, this was kind of, uh, I was born in 1970. So we moved to Ontario. um, And uh, so for the most part, I grew up in Oshawa, Ontario. Shout out to the Schwiggity. So what brought the family from Montreal to Oshawa? Well, my parents got divorced and um, my stepdad was an Ontario guy. And, uh, you know, at a time when, you know, you know, language was starting to define the times in Quebec and our family was completely bilingual. Um, all my, I have French cousins, I have English cousins, so we're completely bilingual, but my stepdad was was very English. And so kind of employment opportunities for him were just going to be bigger and better in Ontario. So we, we moved to Ontario uh, to, a, you know, it's kind of a little, little start as a new family kind of thing. What was life like growing up in uh, Oshawa? Do you remember your time in Montreal enough that you can compare it to your time in Oshawa? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because we're the part of Montreal that we were, that we lived in that our family are certainly the Anglophone side of our family still lives in is kind of LaSalle and Verdun. And at that point, Verdun was a really was the kind of blue collar English enclave of Montreal. So I've often referred to it as like Montreal's Oshawa. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the, the kind of similar Verdun was a little bit closer to like the downtown core than Oshawa was. It's on the island of Montreal. I'll be honest, growing up in Oshawa wasn't great. Like it, it, I certainly respect everybody there and 
I have come to appreciate my time there. But we grew up quite poor um, in a rough part of town. And I didn't love it. And, I, you know, that kind of that the idea of curiosity at that point was really about I was curious about life beyond Oshawa's borders and not just that, but kind of that that life that ours was defined, that type of life that defined our lives. And 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 I just wanted not better, not worse, just different. And um, and so as soon as I could leave, I did. I, I started like when I was 17 years old was when I was old enough to get a job as a junior counselor at a summer camp. Like I was like, I'm out of here. And I went to summer camp, even though I had no exposure to summer camp, I'd never been to summer camp. But that was like me trying to leave and look for different a different experience in life. I grew up in an apartment building and it was a really rough apartment building. There's, I don't know, there's just something about seeing urine in a stairwell that makes you think, you know, yeah, you, maybe you there's something it better than this. So just to touch on that a little bit, do you think if your your means growing up were far more comfortable, you probably would have been less curious or less likely to try to get out and explore the things that you ended up doing? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think I think I didn't, you know, because I didn't know I didn't have anything to benchmark, right? I had I all I had was I'd like I just started going like, well, I don't know. What I looked at my my high school wrestling coach and I was like, I don't know. What did you do? He said, I did a phys ed degree and I went to Queens. I was like, great. So I did a phys ed degree. I went to Queens because I didn't really know anything else. I had nobody else to kind of show me the way. So that was just like, all right, I'm going to do this thing. And I don't really know anything about this experience whatsoever because no one in my family had been to university. So that kind of approach, I think, has defined my career. of just like, I'm just going to do a thing. And it's probably going to work out okay. And I'm just going to keep seeking and keep exploring. Whereas if I had grown up in a family with, you know, parents who were accountants, you know, or maybe I'd, I would have been more comfortable in just reliving their lives, if that makes sense. No, it definitely makes sense. Completely understand that. Let's talk a little bit about wrestling because that was a big part of your high school career. So what was the attraction to joining the wrestling team? Well, it, we were a wrestling school. We were one of the best wrestling schools in Ontario. Um, it was Jail Roberts, and our coach was very well known. And we just we had there was a legacy. Like if you're going to play a sport at that high school, it's like well, the wrestling team is where it's at. And so, so I liked that. I liked that. You know, my close friends had kind of done that. It, it kind of gave me a unique sport that nobody else had done. I was a small kid too, right? So. I, like I played football, but I, you're not good at football when you're 97 pounds, <laughs> you know? Jeez. Okay. So, so the fact that you have different weight classes and you could be competitive against people your size, yeah. that, that incentivized you to keep going. Yeah. And I, and so those things combined, the culture of the sport and, and of the team, my friends were on it. Um, it, it was unique in that not a lot of people did it. And I could really, I could compete against people my own weight. And that really formed a great part of my, of who I was in high school. And I wrestled at both the high school level and at the club level. And um, with many of the same people and the same coaches, because it was such a really tight knit community. You said your teachers, your coaches, your siblings, and your mom 
as some of your biggest influences, but I just want to, I want to focus on three of them, putting your siblings off to the side. One thing I noticed about teachers, coaches, and your mother is that they're all supposed to be there to impart knowledge on you. So it seems like your influences were the type of people that were supposed to teach you or mentor you through life. Well, my mom, my mom's a unique one because she, she did the opposite and it wasn't that she didn't teach me anything. I don't think she set out to teach me anything. And she was very naive and ignorant to some of the things that I was interested in. So I, you know, I remember being in university and being stressed out about something. And I, and I said something like, well, the TA said this. And of course my mom said like, what's, what's a TA. So Mm -hmm. she didn't, she couldn't give me shared experience. She couldn't give me personal insight into what I was going through. And so she wasn't informing any of those choices, but where my mom really gave me, you know, the lessons I learned were kind of a more emotional lessons. My mom was physically disabled. She was born with spina bifida. wasn't supposed to live past six years old, had a horrible first husband, had quite frankly, a horrible second. They weren't married, but a horrible second relationship. She lived through the chaos and torment of her life. And she really put her four, in some ways, put her four kids before anything else. And she just tried to do the best job she could do. And she was still one of the happiest people you could ever meet. She had a wonderful laugh. Um, She was a really social person. She cared for other single moms in a way that other people did. Like she was just a really, a wonderful, caring human being um, who had quite frankly, a shitty life. And um, I think she'd be proud of all four of us right now. Um, But, you know, I think there are just so many people in this country and in this world who they're not going to amount to the traditional definition of success. And, but they're still going to teach us a, a hell of a lot. And we can't forget about those people. It's funny. It reminds me of something that Andrew Yang says when he talks about universal basic income. He doubles down on, say, for example, the stay-at-home parent or stay-at-home parents who are adding value or are adding value by taking care of the kids and that they don't get any sort of recognition for it. Because like you said, our definition of success usually has a monetary value attached to it. And there's no monetary value, direct monetary value attached to a parent who stays home, makes sacrifices to look after their kids. Exactly that. Yeah. She, you know, she, she, she went to a the school she went to was literally called Montreal school for crippled children, which is just a horrible oh my God. now, but this is, you know, this is in the whatever fifties or whatever. So that's what they called them back then. Montreal school for crippled children. And they graduated in grade 10. Like, here you go. This is all you got. Grade 10 is where you max out. And so she left. So Career aspirations were never going to be that high. The reality that was never going to be there. Um, And her, yeah, her success was really, really different. But you, and, and, and even weirdly, I would not have been who I am. This is how I kind of justify it all in my own mind, which is I love where I'm I'm at in life. I love where I'm at career-wise with my family, everything. 
I would not be the person I am of the struggles that I went to through that I went through and the balance of those struggles with the emotional support of my mom. So yeah, I would be a very different person if I had it easy. And she balanced that out in, in many ways, and she should be acknowledged for that. Your very first job was delivering the newspaper at nine years old, and you were even named Carrier of the Year. So what newspaper were you delivering, and what did you have to do to earn Carrier of the Year? You've done your research. What? This is unearthed from, yeah. Um, the, the, this, it was the Oshawa This Week newspaper, and I, I don't remember why I did it. I did it because I felt that I should do that, you know, um, and uh, so the Oshawa This Week newspaper, this is what's really interesting about it. The Oshawa This Week newspaper is a free or is a volunt or at the time, I don't know about now, it was a voluntary payment paper. So by that, I mean, there were so many ads in this thing. It wasn't the pillar of journalism. It was local news, you know. <laughs> I, I um, delivered the was, Mississauga News. I, I can empathize with it. Yeah, you know, it's like stuff from city council and, you know, a dog went missing and sports teams and stuff like that. But there were so many ads and so many flyers in it that it was really just an envelope for, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for promotional messaging. So I delivered envelopes with promotional messaging. And the the rule was everybody got it. Now, what the role of the carrier was, you went around and you said, uh, I guess remember, knock, knock, collecting for the Oshawa this week. And people could either pay or not pay. If they wanted to pay, it was whatever, 350 a month or something. And if they didn't want to pay, they could say, I don't want to pay. So the person that was before me, was I lived in a, a big apartment building, 126 units in this apartment building, seven floors. That was my route. That was the the, the paper route that I that I delivered to, just that building. And the carrier before me didn't live in the building. I don't know who he was or she was. I don't know who they were. And then I took it over. Well, if you don't know the kid who's delivering your newspaper, they don't live in the building and you don't have to pay for it. And it's in a rough neighborhood where not everyone's made of money. Guess what? You're probably going to say, no, I'm not paying for it. But when Ronnie Tight from 408 goes knock, 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 collecting for the Oshawa this week, dude, you know me. You have to see me in the elevator. You're going to pay. The conversion of non-pay to pay as soon as I took over the paper route went through the roof. And so they saw this and they said, this kid's doing something and it was a conversion that they had never seen before. And I got carrier the year because of it. There's such a great lesson in there that people want to do business with people they know. And when you know somebody, there's a shorthand to like, you know what? Don't bullshit me. Just get, come on. You know, this is good. This is me. You're looking at, you know me. And, um, and so that's, yeah, that's how I got carrier of the year. Was this your first introduction to, we could call it hustle culture. So yeah, they're, they're like, that was my first quote unquote job. My first like traditional job, I think was at 13. And I was, I cleaned the offices and the store of Doug Wilson's menswear in downtown Oshawa. And I went out one Sunday and I said to my mom at 13, I'm going to get a job. She's like, what are you talking about? Like when I said, I don't know, I'm just going to go out. And I went out downtown Oshawa and I saw a guy who was uh, 
putting mannequins because the store was closed on a Sunday. And there was a guy doing the window dress. He was putting mannequins into the windows and stuff. And I said, he was unloading stuff. And I said, do you want me to help you? And he goes, yeah, you can help me out. And yeah, I'm 13. And I said, I'm, I'm looking for a job. And um, he called the owner of the store and said, there was this kid who helped me out. He's looking for a job. Could you do anything for him? And the owner of the store said, sure, you can come in every Sunday and you can clean the store and clean the offices that are above the store. And he totally, they weren't, they didn't need anybody. They didn't pay. He was just, they just totally did this out of pity, I think. But that was my first quote unquote job. You already mentioned that it was your high school wrestling coach who recommended, or he didn't recommend, but you, he went to Queens and he studied phys ed. And because you looked up to him, you followed that route. So when you landed at Queens and you were studying phys ed, was it everything you thought it would be? Because right now you are in a world professionally that is completely different from what I'd say a phys ed grad from a typical phys ed grad from Queens, let alone any other Canadian university is in. Yeah, it, it was, um, between camp and Queens, my eyes were opened, right? I was like, Oh, this, all these people whose parents have all these random, weird, obscure careers that what I can do, you can do anything. There's so, there's so many options. You don't have to just get a job or you don't have to like do that linear path of like undergrad phys ed to teachers college to teaching phys ed. And, uh, you know, I still respect, you know, the teachers and, and people who teach phys ed, but it was just like, Oh, I've got, I've got interests and I can do other things. So that's when my eyes were first opened up. So very early on, I was like, I like this as a program, but I'm not teaching phys ed. And I didn't know what it was going to be, but it was like, uh, there's, there's a wider variety of stuff. And so it, it was kind of what I thought it was going to be like, but it was everything else there um, between the people in my class who not everybody wanted to teach phys ed and my housemates, the five other people I live with who all had really interesting backgrounds and were wonderful people. Um, and so I, that just kind of gave me the permission to kind of look beyond those borders. There was also like, um, John Irving wrote one of my favorite books of all time, prayer for Owen Meany. And he's one of my favorite authors lives in Toronto part, at least part time. Um, John Irving was, had a lot in common with me when that, or I had a lot in common with him where I was a wrestler. He was a wrestler. Um, he, and in college, started wrestling and discovered his love of writing. And when he discovered his love of writing, this was not something that jocks did. And so he started to lie. He went to his coach and said, you know, I can't make the meet or I can't make practice because I'm going to see my girlfriend. His girlfriend was his writing. And he started to pursue this thing, even though he still loved coach, you know, wrestling and he still loved athletics but he started to lie as he started to pursue this other passion. And I was felt he lying like, though, because poetically that could be his girlfriend. But poetic, <laughs> but yes, he, he, he could just, he could just argue that the coach isn't deep enough to understand the truth of what <laughs> yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he talked about this in, in, in this book he wrote called the imaginary girlfriend. And he dedicated that book <laughs> to his wrestling coach. Um, oh God, that's awesome. And one of the, my, one of the, 
I think, most special moments of my life. So this, I read this book, and I go, oh, I don't have to do that. I can, man, I can be whatever I want. I, I don't have to pursue this thing because I'm expected to pursue phys ed or wrestling or whatever. And years later, I'm at a restaurant having dinner with the publisher of my second book. And seated beside us is John Irving. And I text my publisher because I don't want to say it out loud. Oh my God, this is that's John Irving. And she's like, Yeah, I think you're right. And he was with his wife, and I'm presuming his daughter, uh, but, but whoever. Um, and so the whole the whole re- dinner, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out that this guy has had such an impact on my life, and he has no idea. And so I. As they're getting up to leave, I turn to the who I think is the daughter, and I go, "Is that John Irving?" And she's and she's like, uh, "Yeah, that's that's him." She's like, gets this question every day, you know, like, "Is that John Irving?" She's like, "Yeah, that's him." And I just say to him, like, "I, I just want to tell you, like, I'm sure other people come up to you and say how much Peripheral and Meanie or Cider House rules or Garp or Hotel New Hampshire or whatever mean to them." I'm sure there's not a lot of people who tell you that it's imaginary girlfriend that had a significant impact on your life. I was a wrestler. This is the publisher of my second book. Um, And he was lovely and gracious. And we don't often get to thank those people, um, but it was uh, just such a beautiful poetic moment in my life. Your first role after graduation saw you return to Queens almost immediately, and you took an admin role at the Smith School of Business. And tell us a little bit about what you were doing there and how you found that job, because I believe you helped launch the very first, I don't know if it was full correspondence or semi-correspondence learning uh, MBA in Canada. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't correspondence per se, but it was the first uh, executive MBA delivered through video conferencing. At that time, it was, you know, a hybrid uh, in in class learning in the summertime with virtual connection. So it was called the National Executive MBA. But how I got the job was, so I was a phys ed grad. I was in phys ed and they had ran these executive programs in the summertime. And there was one program pro- called Program for Public Executives. And one of my professors who's an amazing person, Linda Galasso, would would ran a program in conjunction with this executive development program where she kind of managed the lifestyle program of everything from health and nutrition and exercise and how that implicated or how that impacted executive performance. And she said, hiring a couple of students, do you want to come in for the summertime? So I did it for two summers as this lifestyle coordinator. And the team there said, hey, we want to, you to work with us on a full-time basis because we're launching these executive MBA programs. We want you to come in and help us launch it. And I was like, I'm not a BCom. And they're like, doesn't matter. Gordon Cassidy, who was a brilliant entrepreneur, who was a full professor of statistics in the business school, um, said only rocket science is rocket science. Don't worry about this stuff that BComs learn. You'll learn that. You're smart. You'll learn that. Here's what I love about you. I love, and what I love about phys ed grads, I love that you're social that you get the people side of it, you know, to the team dynamic, right? Um, so you get that part. Secondly, you went to Queens, you got into Queens, you're probably pretty smart. Thirdly, you're competitive. Fourthly, you know what it means to perform as an individual, but do it as part of a larger team and contribute to team goals. 
Um, so that's what I love. The rest of the stuff, you'll learn that. I need that skill set if we're going to be successful launching this. And of the six program managers at one point in the in the school of business launching these executive MBA programs, three of us were phys ed grads. There were, you know, that was such a huge because like I never thought I was going to be in business. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I I landed there and loved it. And what I really what has come full circle now in my life is remembering I what I didn't just get a job in business. I was doing all this stuff in in business, but I was at the back of the room to basically take an executive MBA. I was in every single class. So I got to hear from Ken Wong and, and Peter Richardson and uh, and Merv Dobb and John Gordon, like Elspeth Murray, like the most brilliant business minds in the country. And that was my first taste of working in business was basically taking an executive MBA. That's incredible. You know what that story reminds me of or your story reminds me of? Quentin Tarantino and how working at a video store allowed him to watch all of these movies for free and take notes and help him just refine his craft or build it. Thank you. That's such a like that's a great connection of the connecting the dots. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I was a kid at Blockbuster Video who got to uh, sit through the best movies that have been ever made. We do not put enough emphasis on just learning by example, just taking a step back, letting someone else do it. Sometimes you get to ask questions. Sometimes you don't. And that's why I think YouTube is such such a valuable medium because you can go on there and you can learn just about anything. I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying you shouldn't get professional training because God knows that there are contractors out there that are watching YouTube videos and going, yeah, <laughs> yeah I can totally. I, I can replace your toilet. No, you can't. Yeah, <laughs> don't totally. do that. But so many things out there. God. OK, so then how did you find your way then into media and marketing? And specifically, can we say that Affinity Edge was your first job, your first formal job into uh, this industry? Yeah, it was. So uh, Mike Tobias, who is still to this day a very good friend. Um, had launched Affinity Edge. Now, this is, of course, I'm dating myself. I'm 53 years old. So this was the beginning of the internet. This is such a weird time to kind of enter the business world. You want a story about stuff being dated? A couple jobs back, myself and another colleague were talking about Millie Vanilli. And then we had this, <laughs> we had this, we had this one young lady who was working with us. She was probably in her early 20s. And she's like, what are you talking about? So we explained to her who Millie Vanilli was. And I said, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to send you their Wikipedia page. And no word of a lie, 10 minutes later, she's like, they won Grammys. They toured. <laughs> How stupid were people back in the 80s? So it's like we're all dating ourselves right now. But I, I yeah. try to throw ICQ out to people and they're just like, what? And I'm oh, like, that hilarious. was that was Facebook before Facebook, MySpace and MSN. So yeah, don't yeah, worry about 100%. dating yourself here. Yeah. So so this is the beginning of the Internet. And so I kind of transit where I was doing stuff in the business school. And I was like, hey, we need a website for all these programs. I'll take the lead on that. And so I had heard about Affinity Edge. They were in Kingston, um, met Mike. Mike became a very good friend. We became running partners. And uh, Mike and, and I worked on the kind of the, the website for the School of Business. And then I had another job offer from somebody else. But it was very clear that like my time at Queens was done, that I, I needed to branch out. And... Um, I, I actually called Mike and said, I have a job offer and they sent over the contract. Can you take a look at it? And he's like, yeah, of course, of course. And then he calls me back. He's like, don't sign it. And I was like, Whoa, what, is something wrong? He's like, don't sign it. Come work with me. We're opening an office in Toronto. We're partnering with an ad agency called Sharp Blackmore to be their web development arm 
and I need you there. So I joined Mike at Affinity Edge. We became the web development partner of Sharp Blackmore, headed by Bill Sharp and Tom Blackmore. And then that lasted like uh, six months or something. Um, and it was just a weird time. And I was just like, I think Mike needs to pivot the business a little bit. And so I just said, hey, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go. You don't need to pay my salary. Not like I was making a ton of money or anything, but I was like, you, you need to, you just need to like take this on your own. And so I volunteered to leave. And Bill Sharp called me in his office and said, I hear you're leaving. And do you ever think of working in advertising? I was like, no. He's like, we'd love to. So I joined Sharp Blackmore. I just basically sat at the same place. I just started as an employee of a new, somebody else paid my salary. I think he said, we'll pay you whatever they were paying you. And I just switched from one day to the next. Did you know how big of a deal Sharp Blackmore was in the advertising agency, or not the advertising agency, the advertising world, when Mike said to you, hey, don't sign this contract, we're partnering with Sharp Blackmore? Never heard of them. Never heard of them. I had no idea what that meant. So you had no idea that you were basically getting a chance to work with I don't know if they'd be as high as a, a Procter and Gamble or a Unilever, but the CPG world, but basically kind of like the creative world or the advertising world's equivalent, because they are one of the big dogs. Yeah, they. I mean, they, well, it was it was a weird time for them because they had just bought the business back from DDB, and so they were they kind of like it was Robin Sharp. They sold to DDB, then Bill and Tom bought it back. So when I joined Sharp Blackmore, there were only like seven people, I think, or six people. Like I think I may have been employee number six in this kind of phase two. And they had, I think Xerox and like absolute. And then they had just won this client called MGI software. And, and so they're like, you can, you're tech savvy. You can run MGI software with Liz Volker. And so I was employee number six. So they, but I didn't, they could have been J Walter Thompson. I wouldn't have known what that was either. I just had no idea that I didn't know that about ad agencies that never, I mean, I guess I knew they kind of existed, but I had no idea what that world was and nor did I know anybody in it. So how did your role change when I guess you could say you moved across the hall, same building, mm-hmm. and you uh, took on an account director role? Um, well, I think I was account supervisor first and, but Liz Faulkner was the account director on the account. Liz really kind of mentored me as an account person in terms of like, this is what you do kind of thing. And Bill and Tom were, well, everybody at that stage, we were so small. It was such a great entrepreneurial crockpot of just like people doing stuff that was really interesting and cool. And just, they were just growing the business. So it was really interesting. I eventually became an account director and kind of ran the Intel business. And that's where it was like, you can have this account. Um, and that's when I, you start to see that you're, you know, I'm, I think I've always been pretty self-aware, but it was like, oh, this is what I'm good at. And this is what I'm not good at. And so I was very good at kind of relationships and that kind of entrepreneurial thinking and getting stuff done and internally and externally getting people on side. But I was never going to be the financial guy. I was never going to be the guy that was really great with detail and follow up. And so I was, I was that type of account director and I, well, I think you probably know where you're going with this, but then I decided to switch over to creative. You make the switch to creative and you assume the role of senior writer, but during this time you were also doing uh, stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Let's start first with that. 
what brought you into stand-up comedy? Because that can be a very, very liberating and terrifying experience and, and gratifying experience at the same time. Yeah. Remember that, like the, when we talked about the curiosity of just going to Queens and having no idea what that was going to be like, but it was something that I wanted to pursue. It's the exact same thing. I love the world of stand-up comedy. I love the craft of it. I was always curious about the craft of it. Like, how does that happen? How does some, like, I get that they're funny, but that doesn't, they don't just walk out on stage and do that. So how do you know? I want to feel what that's like the entire process. So I started doing kind of classes at Second City and stuff and like really good still to this day. My, one of my best friends, Nick Kindler was in a sketch troupe and I went to see Nick and he said, Hey, there's, um, this, you know, this, we got this host for our show at the Rivoli and he was like, you got to come see this guy. This guy's going to be incredible. And I went and I saw this and I said, I can do, I can do that. But that guy, this is the legendary guy. I could do what he did in, and I want to do that. And so I was like committed to like, okay, I'm going to do stand up. And I went to, uh, I went to my friend still, one of my best friends, Steve Patterson, who's an amazing stand up host of the debaters on CBC. I said, okay, I want to do this. How do I do this? He's like, go to Yucks on a Monday night, sign up for open mic night. And okay, okay. So I went down. I was like, I just want to, I'm not going to sign up tonight. I just want to sit through it. I want to get and see what the experience is like. Saw it. It was a shit show. I was like, I'm already better than all these people. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not doing this. This is a horrible way to start and do comedy. Like that guy left a bet. That guy's drunk. Like, this is ridiculous. No, I'm not doing this. So I went back to him and I said, I'm not doing that. What else can I do? He's like, oh, well, I don't know. Like, why don't you just, you can, if you get to meet a producer who's producing a live show at like Spirits or whatever, the Ripley, get to know them and see if they'll put you on for five minutes, even though you've never done it before. And I just said, why don't I just become a producer and make myself the headliner? So my very first stand-up comedy show of all time, I produced it, made myself the headliner and did a 45 minute set. And I got some friends, but Nick's troop over myth and another friend, Aurora Brown with some guys from Buffalo to open. They opened Steve Patterson hosted. And I did the entire second half of the show as a 45 minute set. So it was an entrepreneurial way in to stand up because I didn't want to do it the way everybody else had done it. It's still to this day, one of the most gratifying, fulfilling things I've ever done. And what was the source of your material? Because the best comedians take their own personal experiences and observations and they find a humorous way to relate those back to the audience. Yeah, I, um, so what I did was, yeah, you start with write what you know. And I, so I started the sequentially right from birth. And how it must have been what it was must have been like for my mom in the late 60s. I was born in 1970, so I guess she found out late of 1969 that she was pregnant, and what that would have been like compared to today. And one of the first jokes I wrote, or the first bits, was like how today, like moms would say, like I'm pregnant, and then they will say like, oh, I can't, no, I can't drink, I'm pregnant. And then I just extrapolated like, oh, no, I can't drink caffeine. I'm sorry, I'm pregnant. And no, I don't eat food anymore. I just eat mulched <laughs> grass. I'm pregnant. 
and compare that to the late 60s when my mom was like, um, no, I'm not going to drink Coke anymore. Make it a make it a Jack Daniels and <laughs> and pass me the cigarette and light this joint. And I'm going to do a line of cocaine and give me a belt so I can strap in some heroin. And like that, the difference between those two worlds, that was one of the first things I wrote. And and then I just worked it in my own brain. So it was just at bay. It was called the it was called the Canadian baby bonus. And it was all based on the check that we got and how but it was a double entendre. It was the baby bonus on the check and how we were really poor and how we needed that check. That check clothed us. It gave us haircuts. Um, but at the same time, the bonus of that was that a friend had a baby and I used. I kind of had this like new world, old world kind of back and forth kind of thing. And the bonus was that when you look at new babies coming into the world, you suddenly get to reflect on your own life and what you've learned. And so that's what it was. And and it was basically just an homage to my mom of just like that life was shitty growing up. We were poor. We wore hand-me-downs. And I wouldn't have had it any other way because it made me who I am. How did that inform the creative process because you had just moved over into a creative job. And I want to preface that by saying that in this industry, sometimes you only get as much practice as you can get out of the briefs that you're given. And it seemed like you were like almost, almost like a basketball player who said, you know what, even though I'm at the top of my game, I'm still going to go out to the local park and I'm just going to practice my free throws over and over again. Did you find that a lot of the writing you were doing, the jokes that you had written, those that made it into your routine, those that didn't make it into your routine made it a lot easier or more enjoyable for you to be to be a copywriter in some ways yeah like i think it it certainly that kind of added application of creativity combined with oh really you didn't think that present you're nervous about that presentation because five people said they didn't get it try being in front of a comedy club of 200 people and you hit a punchline and all you hear from the back of the room is <coughs> oh terrifying try that that makes a boardroom presentation. That's easy. Give me a break. So it was that really nice balance. Um, and that, yeah. So it was like it it tested out writing it and and I brought some of that in when I was a copywriter. But copywriting also made me kind of appreciate the writing side of it. You know, whereas in stand-up, you're kind of doing bullet points on a napkin. And, it, you know, having to write a 30 second radio spot where you're counting syllables so that you can get it under the under 30 seconds, like that approach to efficiency really helped in comedy. So it was, it was a, a little bit of both. But here's what's weird about it. When I was younger in my career, it really helped because when I'd go into a born room and they'd be like, oh, you don't think the script is funny? No, he's a comedian. Like he does that and he does this. So it gave me huge credibility when people found out I did comedy. But when I became more senior, it actually hurt my credibility. Because then it became, oh, what? You double dip? Are you moonlight? Or you don't, you're not really into this business? That Are you really just a comedian who want like, and they didn't trust, I think, my advice because I was a comedian. And I had to kind of back away from it. And I remember Bill Sharp, because again, I was such a, a thing of how I defined myself and was such a huge source of pride. 
that I was always like, I'm a stand-up, I'm a stand-up, I'm a stand-up. And I went to Bill Sharp. I'll never forget, I just said to him, do you think me being a comedian is actually hurting my career? And he very quickly said, yep. And I could tell that he had wanted to tell me that, but didn't have the heart to tell me that. And it, cause it was such a, how I define myself, but it really hurt my outlook. And then when I started speaking, I like made a very conscious choice to say, pull the fact that I was a comedian from my bio. Don't mention it. I'm not a comedian who knows about business. I'm a funny business guy. And that is a repositioning. That's a very different product. And when I made that pivot, that's when the world changed. It's interesting that you had those experiences as a performer. In my last semester of university, I was living in St. Catharines. This is the fall of 2005. Do you know the band The Trues? Uh, I don't know their music, but I certainly know of them. Yeah, a Canadian rock band. They were particularly big in, I'd say, the late 2000s or mid-2000s-ish. And yeah. their drummer was renting a room in the same house that I was. Cool. And it's funny, I was making small talk with him and he was telling me about his career and he said something very interesting that I think parallels with what you experienced as a comedian. He said to me, he goes, in North America, when I tell people I'm a musician, they're like, well, no, no, what's your job? Like, like right. what do you do? Like they think, whereas when he, when he's touring in Europe and people ask him what he does, like he bumps into someone in the bar, he says, well, I'm a musician they treat it like a proper career. Like they right. give performance work its due. Whereas over here, it seems to be a side hustle until you're Taylor Swift. Yeah, th that was like, I'm, I'll never forget. There was um, a band called the Leslie's Bet Trio. Uh, or no, maybe it was um, Bourbon Tabernacle Choir, whatever. One of those, one of those bands, one of those two bands. And the lead singer, Kate Fenner. Kate Fenner was this musician. And I saw her, my roommate, housemate Nick and I saw her at AJ's Hangar in Kingston over going to Queens on a Friday night. And then we drove to Toronto on the Saturday and we were having lunch in a restaurant and she was our waitress. And I was like, what is happening? I just saw you on, because I, again, had very limited exposure to the creative industry at that point when I was a student. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's our waitress. There is no way I just saw her on stage and those people make a ton of money and they're very famous and all that. And I, that was the first time I was like, mm, no, they got a man, this is not an easy job. And it's a really a pursuit of passion. Cause up to that point, I didn't think I was that person. I didn't think I was a creative person. There was nothing that I had ever done that would lead me to believe I was a creative person. Uh, creative people in, you know, growing up where I grew up and with who I grew up, those were other people from other places. Never for a minute thought that that would be me. We're going to take a quick break. Enjoying this episode? Of course you are, or you wouldn't have made it this far. Compliment your listening experience by subscribing to the Media People newsletter at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or at mediapeople.beehive.com. It's a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or mediapeople.beehive.com. What brought you to Channel 500? First off, tell me what is Channel 500? 
So Channel 500 was an agency uh, owned by Rod Bell that was really kind of really way ahead of their time that they were redefining kind of content in a way that people now, it just makes a lot of sense, but they were, they started out doing like infomercials, but not like, not shitty infomercials. Not they, like Ron they, Popeil? Well, yeah, like not that kind of stuff, but they like they were, and it was such a great insight in that don't think of it as an infomercial in those traditional definitions, but think of it as 30 minutes of content that you need to write to, to inform and inspire people and have call to actions throughout. And, the, you know, and, and certainly there's demonstration that, you know, kind of cuts through. And so I was, it started out where I was just like freelancing for them because like, could you write this? And I was like, I don't know. I've never written an infomercial before, but I'd love to give that a go. I'd love to see what's that like writing 30 minutes. And so I did that for a few times. We did some really cool stuff for Rogers and BMO and like big brands. And they weren't, you know, it was really wonderful production value and stuff. And he really wanted to kind of change that and, and had, had, had launched something called Travel Shop Television, where they were going to produce content and write content about vacations and sell vacation destinations through that, like Home Shopping Network kind of thing. So I think I was really brought, I was attracted to this fact that he was redefining TV and content and advertising and all that together. And I thought that is super cool. And it was just something really unique. At the same time, Bill and Tom had just sold to Havas. And I was like, I don't know what that's going to mean. And are they going to leave? And somebody else is going to come in. And I was really connected with them. And I thought someone's going to come in and they're not going to value my skills at the way Bill and Tom. I was just, you know, because again, I didn't have any exposure to this whole world. And so I left to join Channel 500 to to build their creative department. And, and that didn't work out. It was just like Rogers had given Channel 500 like a TV channel that we were going to launch this program from. And so I liked the idea of doing that. And then I get there and Robert Rogers pulled the channel back and it just, things just didn't work out. It was just way ahead of its time. And so I ended up leaving after I think about a year. But I still really treasure and value the people I worked with and and the the fact that it was so far ahead of its time. But you found your way back to kind of a blessing in disguise to Sharp Blackmore, which at that time had been acquired and become Euro RSCG. Yeah. So so I had kind of through all those kind of machinations of stuff, Sharp Blackmore became Euro RSCG, which was owned by Havas. Um, Tony Miller had uh, in my kind of final couple of years there, um, Tony Miller, who to this day is the guy that taught me how to write advertising. Um, he was creative director when I made the transition to, over to the creative department. Um, and so Tony had left. So Tony, here was the Sharp Blackmore or Euro RCG was without Tony. I was unhappy where I was. I went back in freelance, still had a wonderful relationship with all my colleagues and certainly Bill and Tom. And they're like, you should be associate creative director. And I was like, okay. And then I became creative director working with Paul McClyman, who's also a really wonderful guy. Um, and then Paul was like creative director on home hardware and had been for some time. And he was just so good at that sector. He was a really experienced guy, 
but he was so critical to the home hardware business that it was difficult for him to kind of really take care of other stuff in the agency. They were so dependent on that account was so dependent on him. And, um, and so I just took on more of the other stuff. And then at one point we just kind of like agreed that I would take care of everything else and he would take care of home hardware. And, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have time to touch my stuff and I wouldn't have time to touch his stuff. And I still, I still cherish Paul as a, I think a really an outstanding human being and really talented creative. What kind of impact do you have or, or how does your impact change on the final product as you progress up the corporate or creative shop ladder? It's a great question because now I'm seeing stuff as, you know, in my role that I play probably more of a strategy role than a creative role now. And so, but, but having been there, you're not, well, as you, as you move up in a large organization like that, um, you really take on an advisory role in a lot of different, you're not writing headlines, you're not cranking on stuff. You become more of a coach than a player. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I think I was, you know, there there are really two types of creative directors, and I've never um, shied away from knowing what type I was. There are two types of creative directors. There are the creative directors who are so incredibly brilliant that everybody clamors to just do work good enough that lives up to their expectations. I'm not that guy. I'm not that creative director. Um, I've never been that creative director. Then there are those creative directors who are, will say that they're administratively great, that I'm not gonna come up with ideas that you're gonna like, wow, Ron just really blew me out of the water and I, if one day I can be Ron tight. No, that was never gonna be me. But there are other types of creative directors who are great coaches, who they gather support, who are great at selling work and who are great team players and who can take your work and challenge your work um, and who can maybe make your work a little bit better and maybe point out stuff about your work that maybe you didn't see. But you're never going to want to, you know, there's a little bit, you're more empowered to do your best work and they'll help you sell it. Um and uh, that's the type of creative director I was. And I think that's still kind of who I am, only now because I'm more involved in strategy, maybe I occasionally take more of a heavy hand on, no, it's gotta be in this zone, or I wanna see something in this zone, and maybe it's, maybe I'm gonna be wrong on that, but I wanna see it. Um, and so, and that's because we're a smaller organization, It's I'm a partner at the agency and I have a little bit more hands-on influence. Do you think influence from your wrestling coach has anything to do with your success at this level? Simply because when you're a coach, you get to be a player for a certain period of time. And then eventually you have to be honest with yourself and say, okay, I can't do this anymore. And if I want to stay involved in the sport, not that you still couldn't be a copywriter or an account director or anything like that, but there's a certain point where you're like, okay, I've accomplished so much as a player that now's my time to take a step back and impart that on a new generation. So do you think, think so? Yeah. Cause you, you, I mean, you spoke fondly of your, uh, of your wrestling coach. Yeah. I think, um, I think coaching people is, 
I'm better at coaching people than managing people, if that makes sense. Like management it, it is definitely such makes a, sense. you know, it's a very pragmatic, the very detailed approach where you're on top of the details and you're doing yearly reviews and you're, you know, like you're, I don't, I'm not a great manager of people, but I think I'm a pretty good coach and I wish I was a better manager, uh, but I guess in some ways our strengths are our weaknesses. See, when you put it like that, I see a manager as someone who points to a task and says, do it this way. Whereas I find if you're going to compare that to a coach, a coach would say, okay, this is what we need done. This is what the end result should be, but they're going to give you a certain level, a certain level of liberty on how you get there. So you at least get a chance to discover yourself a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, 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 I will often say like, Hey, don't, you need to protect me from me. Like I'm going to have a perspective on stuff and I'm not going to be as close to the details as you are. And I'm not going to be privy to all the feedback that you got live in a meeting. And so I'm going to say an opinion on stuff. And if you, you think it's really wrong for a number of reasons, don't bullshit me. Don't blow smoke on my ass. Tell me that. I'm not, my ego's not that big. Like, just tell me, I think you're wrong. Or if I kill something and you want to fight, I'll obviously say, let's go with this, this, and this. Is there anything that I killed that you really want to fight for? If so, speak up. And uh, I think it's always like, we always have to go into things like this to think like, I might be wrong on this. I might be totally wrong and I'm happy to be proven wrong. Um, and um, so I think, and I think you're, when you own it, you're a little more open to that because you're thinking of the whole team, right? If somebody's got a great idea from account services or the strategy team wants to come in and do, like, you're more open to that more holistic view of the, of the solution. Whereas if you're a, exclusively a creative director and you're accountable specifically for creative, you're probably less uh, focused on the broader team. And that doesn't mean you're a horrible team player or anything. I think it's just, it, it's a perspective that not everybody has. It's interesting, a parallel to that. I've been in media sales my entire career, and I've worked at a couple of companies where we would work on these integrated pitches cross-platform. And that's what a lot of those meetings were like. You'd have one person usually designated with trying to lead the general vision of what the solution should look like, but then you'd have a radio person going, well, no, this is what radio needs. No, 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 this is what radio needs. And they only care about the bottom line and the number. Not that they shouldn't, but then you have a TV person that says, well, this is what TV needs. And then everyone, everyone becomes very tribal or very territorial. And yeah. I think that parallels to what you just said, where certain departments, those people are, they're only going to care about what they're paid to care about. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the line right there. The people are only going to care about what they're paid to care about. Uh, and I'm paid to care about all of it. <laughs> so it's both, inspiring and demanding. Let's bring this full circle. Church and state, the first question I wanna ask you about the agency is, when did you have that kind of aha moment or the courage to say, you know what, I'm gonna go out on my own and do this? Well, it was, it was really a perfect storm of stuff. I mean, on one hand, speaking really started to pick up. I was doing more and more and Bill and Tom were great about kind of giving me extra vacation time so I could speak more. And I started to make more in my vacation than they could pay me in raises and stuff. So that all, it was just kind of getting a little bit out of control. And I felt slightly irresponsible because um, I really respected those guys and never wanted to the hose them in it. Um, so that was happening. 
I think at that point, Tom was, I think they were both beyond their earnout, and, you know, they had sold the business, and I think Tom maybe had just left. And so the dynamic of that family was really kind of changing. So there was that. There was the rise of social media. And like we had just done a, a global campaign for smart technologies that had not gone well because we were just in this weird pivot of, oh, social isn't just about posting stuff and you really need to consciously amplify it and stuff. Like it was just all this stuff. And I was like, man, there's all these things happening. And I feel like I want to get a handle on all of it and and control my destiny a little bit more. And then I've been in like South America shooting this spot and I just saw this, you know, this rap shot where we just had a, a crew of the shot and or a shot of the crew. And I turned to our producer, Francesca, and said, how are we still doing this shit? Like, how are we still flying halfway around the world to shoot really 15 seconds? For a medium that no one's watching anymore. And I, I had this fear that I was gonna be the guy still shooting TV commercials when nobody was doing that anymore. So it was all those things together and I just, I quit. I just resigned and said, I need to, you know, I just wanna do some stuff. I wanna do it on my own terms and I'm gonna go. And it was a lovely parting. I mean, I helped them out. I helped them find people to to take over the job. They gave me an office for three months while I sorted stuff out. They gave me a bullshit title that was like <laughs> chief innovation officer as I as I transitioned so that I wouldn't lose the speaking doll. Like just all they were just lovely about that transition. And I, I owe them a lot um, for that. OK, so this didn't start as a side hustle. You 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 quit. You moved on cold turkey, and then you just started from scratch. Did you have to have? I imagine you did. You had a conversation with your family to say, "Hey, okay, I'm going to be going out on my own, and there are going to be certain risks associated with it." No, because I I met my wife on a plane the weekend after I resigned. Met my wife first time ever. I had never been married, and I was 41 years old. I sit beside my wife on a flight home from New York. And what a way to start a relationship. I just quit my job. I'm taking the summer off and I'm sorting stuff out. So that was a really stressful and beautiful, obviously, you know, I met my wife, but I was also like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. So a year into dating, my wife didn't know Ron with a full on, because I was still figuring stuff out. And I was really kind of, I'm going to see where this goes and I'm going to try and figure out this new model. And, and then when it was like go time, it was like, okay, I'm doing it. And then it was, Oh, you, you don't know me in this role. I don't know me in this role because I've never done this before. So as I'm trying to define, I'm trying to define what type of husband I'm going to be. I'm trying to define what type of entrepreneur I'm going to be. I'm trying to define what type of owner I'm going to be like, all of that was all happening and it was really, it was really stressful. And I, you know, had a speaking was funding it. Like it was just nuts. And we got our first, uh, first kind of project was DX3 Canada. I owe those guys a lot. They were great in the beginning that really, they were the first ones. And I went and I said, I want to help you out on a monthly basis, but I need a retainer. And if, if I promise you, if you give me a retainer, I'll just use that retainer to hire somebody. And so my first hire was Bridget Tal, who was an amazing human being. 
And then it was like, and then we pitched our first client, AB World Foods. And it was like, okay, we got an agency now. We have a couple of retained clients. Let's do this. And um, and then it was like, pressure's on. I got to make this work. Was it hard to hire talent early on? You mentioned Bridget as, I guess, after you're self-employee number two, or you're going to counter as employee number one. But when they see that the the agency is still still in startup mode, did that make some people apprehensive to join? Yeah, I think I sold maybe I sold the aspiration of where I wanted to take things. And I'm really thankful that we were able to get people to join us. And um, and in those early days, man, I remember someone sitting on a milk crate, like doing work and and Bridget kind of managed most of that because I was on the road speaking and stuff, you know, like it was this weird thing and I didn't know what I needed and I didn't know how to inspire people and i it was i was trying to build too many things at once and um that was tricky but yeah you can uh, you know i certainly had a goal of where i wanted to go with it it just took me a while to to get there where did the name church and state come from and what does it mean i know what it means politically but what does it mean in terms of what it means for the agency yeah so uh the, their name was originally the tight group. And I knew as we started to grow, I realized like, Hey, we need to be less tight, more group. So let's, let's rebrand this to something that we speaks to what we do. Church and state in religious standpoint is the separation of church and state. But in advertising, you could never at those, at that point, you could never go to the Globe and mail and say, Hey, we'll, we'll buy an ad. If you write an article on us, they would say, nah, that's the separation of church and state. And so we saw that there was the, it was the unification of church and state, that that was the new world that with, when you democratize distribution and production of content, well, now that changes everything. And it is no longer the separation of church and state, it's the unification of church and state. But it came, I was I was sitting down with a friend, Bram Warshawski, and I said something about church and state, and he just randomly said, that'd make a great agency name. And I said, yes, it would. And two years later, um, we called it church and state. How has the agency changed from, say, day one to the present? Well, one, you know, we've really focused on process. We use think to say as a process to do strategy work and creative work. So we have a very clear trademarked and unique approach to how we solve businesses. And we have, it's a very specific process to how we do it. So that's one thing. Secondly, um, we have a team of people who kind of know it and are kind of engaged in doing that. The roles are very clear. Um, Robin Whalen is my partner um, and she, you know, uh, has equity in the business. And so she is kind of taking, I'm kind of in charge of product, I guess you could say, and she's in charge of the overall business and from every other facet or, and including that, but um, she's the CEO. So I step back from that. And I think we're just more mature and more, more responsible. And uh, it took us 10 years to get there. Okay. Ron, you're also a published author. You co-wrote everyone's an artist, but your first solo publication was think, do say, I picked up a copy of the book and I absolutely loved it. And I recommend it to anyone listening to this episode. The first question I have for you about the book is where did the idea come from? Well, thank you for the, the kind words and thank you for buying and reading. Um, the idea, it first came, I was invited to go on a TV show called The Goods. 
It's a kind of a daytime TV show, uh, or was a daytime TV show at the time. And they asked me to come on and like do something on personal branding. And I was, you know, I was working with the producer ahead of time of what I was going to do. And she was like, look, you just need to simplify it because these people aren't marketers. And so it was really out of frustration that I just said, you know, look at, like, look, let me tell you, this is what marketing is. Marketing is just based on what you think, what you do, and what you say. You just need to align those three things. So that was kind of the the first start. And then I was doing a, a speech at that point that was kind of on the expression economy and just, you know, um, what I was kind of on the road with. And I was working with Michael Port and Amy Port out of Heroic Public Speaking, and they talked about simplifying the thread in the speech. And I just said, well, I, I said this thing on a TV show, and you know, based on what you think, what you do, and what you say. And they're like, that's it. And then we just blew it out from there, the three of us of like, oh yeah, it's like, who do you do it for? And what do they want you to do? And who do you do it with? And when do you say it? And how do you say it? And so that's really where it, where it came from. I'm always curious about the process of writing. Like the like, I know you mentioned how you were mapping things out with others, but like, what does the actual process look like? Are you writing over the period of like two or three years? Do you hunker down once you've got the book deal, or maybe you write it before you even have the book deal and say, you know what, I'm going to take three weeks and I'm just going to hammer this book out and then rewrite it as we go along. Like, what does that look like? So for me, you know, like I'm very active on LinkedIn. I have a whole process of reading material pulling out messages that I get, the main points from that material or having a perspective on that and curating that out. And what the and part of the reason I do that is because it forces me to read every single day and every single week. And so I'm always looking for new stuff. And I track buckets over time. Um, authenticity, leadership, the chaos of hyperinflation, you know, whatever it is. And I just have, I just keep track of all these buckets and when I read something, I create a slide in the moment of if I was to present this, what would the slide be? And then I put my notes down below. So I'm always building out slides for the next speech. And uh, then when I get to about three hours of speaking material, then I go, okay, I got a book. And then, so it, all the research is done. It's all there. And I would have kind of had it on the road and speaking to it. So I've got some of this, you know, kind of natural scripting down. Now I just got to sit down and write it all and make it a book opposed to a series of buckets. And so when I do that, then that's like, you know, I write um, at nighttime from like, say, 7 to 11. And I write original stuff. Not like I write for the I write stuff for the first time between 7 and 11. And then when I get on planes, I edit what I've already written. So it's very distinct, like write original stuff at home and then edit on planes. Because you can always, it forces you to edit in one place. Otherwise you would just always be tweaking. And so you just got to keep pushing forward. It's funny that you mentioned that because when I was in university, I found that if I waited towards the end closer to a deadline to write an essay i would just write the essay whereas let's say i finished it a week and a half before it was due i would literally spend the remainder of that time pouring over it going oh my god should i change this should i change that yeah not that i was a perfectionist but i just couldn't let go of it until it was actually in the submission box yeah exactly 
Ron, thank you so much for being very generous with your time. I know we've gone over what we originally allotted, so let's close with rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay, the campaign you are most proud of. I will say Centennial College, um, a TV spot we did at the beginning of the pandemic because it was it took a positive view on the pandemic when that seemed to be the the thing that nobody could or would do. Was this the video spot that concluded with everyone's a student? Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you. I wrote that script at midnight. And was inspired by my friend Peter Katz and wrote the script and presented it the next morning. It just kind of came to you, that idea, and you went with it at midnight? Yeah. Yeah. Your favorite movie? My favorite movie is Cinema Paradiso. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Mm. Well, I mean, we all would want Brad Pitt, but that would just be a miscast. Um, I many people tell me I look like Jeremy Piven, so maybe it has to be Jeremy Piven. My follow up. If Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? Uh, Well, I wrote a play called The Canadian Baby Bonus, so it'd probably be that. Your favorite book. My favorite book of all time. Um, It's either A Prayer for Owen Meany or All the Light We Cannot See. One of those two. What book are you currently reading? I'm currently reading uh, How to Never Lose a Customer Again, or How to Never Lose an Employee Again by Joey Coleman. Your favorite song? Thunder Road. Either Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen or Hello in There by John Prine or A Day in the Life by The Beatles. The best advice you have ever received? Only rocket science is rocket science. Amen to that. My signature closing question, if you weren't media or marketing, what would you be doing and why? Um, I'd say like consulting, but that's probably too close. Um, I probably would have pursued my, you know, I was a stand-up for 20 years, so I probably would be a full-time comedian. Ron, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Victor. And thanks to everybody out there who's listening. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.